Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. One of my favourite ways to do that is by running live events, like our annual Leadership Summit. There's nothing quite like being in a room full of inspiring women, hearing their stories and sharing leadership experience. Well, in this series, I'm bringing you the next best thing to being there in the room and sharing the highlights from our 2022 summit. Now, usually before you hear me introduce a speaker, you'll hear an acknowledgement of country. But for this episode, I wanted to share the acknowledgement that we heard live at the summit because it was so moving and insightful and very special. And then after that, you'll hear from Dr. Swan, who is an award-winning broadcaster, commentator and journalist who became a household name in Australia during his coverage of the COVID pandemic. He was invited to the summit to speak about the impact of workplace stress on our bodies. So here, live at the summit, is Madison Howarth, followed by Dr Norman Swan. Anna Ganya. My name is Madison Howarth and I'm Future Women's Community Content Coordinator. I'm a proud Gringai woman of the Wanneroo Nation, an area you probably know as the Hunter Valley. I'm also a Ewan woman. Ewan country stretches along the south coast of New South Wales. I was born on Gadigal country, and so it is my honour and privilege to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to elders past and present. I acknowledge their continued connection to the land, waters and skies of this country, I acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded, this land was stolen, and it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. At this year's summit, we are talking about the power of visibility. If you're lucky enough to hear from Wiradjuri and Wellwan woman, Teela Reid yesterday, you would have heard her acknowledge those who have long been invisible in Australia. I want everyone here to think of those invisible stories, those invisible people, those who are not considered the acceptable face of a movement or campaign. And so as long as I am given a platform, I must share the story of an invisible woman. Her name uh, gets me every time. (laughs) Her name was Kathleen Miller. She was born in 1929 and passed away in 2018. Barely a teen in the early hours of the morning, the police knocked down the door of the house she lived in Redford. They pushed her mother out of the way and took all of the children. She was taken to Kudamundra Girls' home. Her and so many others were told it was for her own good. She had her wages, childhood siblings and the chance to be raised in a loving family stolen from her. She was my nan, my family's matriarch but she wasn't just what happened to her. My family isn't defined by intergenerational trauma. She was funny. She had impeccable fashion sense. (laughs) She was kind and tough and strong and soft, but she was not given the opportunity to be all that she could have been. I often think about what she would have done with the opportunities I've had. But here I am, standing here on her shoulders, 
on the shoulders of all the black women in this country who have come before me, who fought for me and my generation of black women. And what do I do with this opportunity? Besides cry. <laughs> um, with this power of visibility, I continue the fight. I fight for those who will come after me and I use my voice, my shaky voice. And here's where you come in. Because that fight is made so much easier with allies. There is a reason some women spark national conversation and others don't. There is a reason some women have their work recognised and amplified and others don't. I ask you to consider who is visible and why. I think you'll find some uncomfortable truths. But you cannot correct the mistakes you refuse to acknowledge just because it's uncomfortable. You cannot right the wrongs of the past if you refuse to engage in meaningful dialogue with those who have suffered. The Uluru Statement from the Heart is one way to do that. A voice to Parliament would empower Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people politically and it would be a permanent institution expressing our views to the government on important issues affecting our people. I urge you to read the Uluru Statement from the Heart. I urge you to use your own visibility and the power that you do have. I urge you to listen to black women. I urge you to play a role in ensuring there are no more invisible women. In 1967, we were counted, and in 2022, we are still asking to be heard. Are you ready to listen? I hope so. Thank you, Madison, for that uh, acknowledgement of country. I actually want to talk a little, just responding to the acknowledgement of countries, um, obviously paying my respects to elders, past, present, and emerging, as you saw there with Madison. And it goes to this issue of what you might call job strain, control over your life, um, chronic stress, and so on. If you go into Aboriginal communities and you say, oh, we want you to stop smoking, we want you to take anti-cholesterol drugs, we want you to do this and that and the other, they often tell you just to piss off because they say to you, what's more important to us is our disempowerment, our lack of ownership of country, uh, lack of place, the stolen generation, lack of true acknowledgement of the stolen generation. And if you come from a, a non-Indigenous background, uh, some people think, well, what, what's all this about? You know, just stop smoking. Just do the cholesterol thing and everything will be fine. Well, everything won't be fine. It shows a profound lack of understanding of how our bodies work. Because when you feel that lack of empowerment, in a sense, that lack of control over your life, it has a profound effect on your body. This is not some Northern Rivers, Nimbin-type view of the world. This is actually solid science. And it starts with understanding what you all know, but we kind of behave differently, is that our mind and body are separate. We go along in life as if that's true. When we all know, if you just think about it for a nanosecond, it's not true. You know, when your brain goes, your mind goes, and your brain is part of your body, it's connected to the rest of your body. And what happens in your brain affects the rest of your body, and what happens in the rest of your body affects your brain and your brain is attuned to your environment. 
So we've got eyes, we've got ears, we've got skin to touch and feel. We've got receptors for emotion. We understand the world around and we take in the world around, we ingest it into our brain, our brain responds and then tells the rest of the body what it's noticing about the environment. So it affects our whole body. And nothing, well not nothing, but one of the most profound effects on the brain that you can have is chronic stress. And chronic stress is experienced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities throughout Australia, as well as people at work, and I'll talk about that in, in more detail in a minute. What happens, and um, what psychologists, those of you who've done psychology, know more about this than me, I'm always a bit nervous talking about it, because I'll get it wrong, I'll, I'll get a fail in my exam, is locus of control. So locus of control is about, you know, summarizing it's about agency. It's about how much power do I feel to have make decisions over my life, over my work, and how pressed do I feel? And if the locus of control is over there, that's not a healthy place to be. If you're a single parent with three kids and you're on a pension, you don't have any locus of control here. It's about poverty, it's about all the pressures of life. So you want it towards yourself. And if you're living in an Aboriginal community, if you've had parents and grandparents who've been dislocated from that community, if you're told time and time again you don't own that land, you do not feel you have that locus of control. And when you lose that locus of control, stuff and important stuff happens in your brain. So it happens at work when you've got a crap boss who micromanages you and doesn't allow you to make decisions about how, how you're doing your job. A good, a good work system sets targets, gives guidance, and it lets you get on with it. A bad workplace pushes you into a narrow space and where you feel that you've got little latitude to actually uh, express your talents. Now what happens here is, and this has been researched very widely, so I'll just give you some examples here of the research that's been done, because this is really powerful stuff. So I've been asked to talk about workplace stress and burnout and so on, but this is what it's all about at a high level. So we all know that intuitively, even if I, you know, when I describe it, you'll know what I mean, but we all know there's a health gradient. What's a health gradient? Well, some people live long, healthy lives, and some people don't live long, healthy lives. Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people do not live as long lives and as healthy lives as the non-Indigenous community. Um, physical death is about 11 years, but healthy life expectancy, the gap is a lot worse than that. Now what happens in your brain when you experience chronic stress is that it affects the hormones in your brain, how your blood pressure is controlled, your heart, your blood vessels, your immune system, the endocrine system, your reproductive system, all those things come from your brain. A study in Britain of the British Civil Service, it's called the Whitehall study, because Whitehall's where a lot of the British Civil Service resides or used to, looked at uh, the health and well-being of British civil servants. And there's nothing more hierarchical than the British civil service. So if you're at the top, you've got a nice big office, and if you're at the bottom, you're just a recent migrant to Britain and you're sweeping the floors. And if you look at the gradient between the person who runs the secretary of the department and the person who's the recent migrant, and you look at the, the, the gradient in the jobs, the 
life expectancy, the chances of getting coronary heart disease, follow that gradient almost exactly, depending where you sit in the civil service. So if you say to people, well, why is that so? So you might say, well, you know, the people at the top don't smoke, they went to Oxford or Cambridge, they're highly educated, they get better access to medical care. A lot of that is true, but in fact, when you actually remove all those factors statistically, the gradient still exists. So you know, education is really important. If you get a lot of education, you get dementia later, you get heart disease later, education is really, really good for you. But if you, if you just subtract it from the equation, you've still got a gradient. And what uh, expatriate Australian Sir Michael Marmot found at University College London is that if you factor in locus of control, the extent to which people feel that they are able to make decisions of their li life, they've got some freedom to do so, that's when it went flat. That's when you eliminated the gradient. But by eliminating, when you eliminate the gradient, you know you found the key factor. And the key factor that was very powerful was loss of locus of control. So coming back to Madsen's acknowledgement of country, there's no group in this country who feel less control over their lives than Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people. But they've been most successful in creating community-controlled health organisations where they do control their destiny. So almost everything that happens in Aboriginal communities is about reasserting that control. And they did that long before they'd read anything about Sir Michael Marmot's work in the British Civil Service. They knew it intuitively. So control, and I talk about this in my book a lot, is really, really important. So it's not being a control freak, it's having that sense of control over your destiny and has these profound effects on your health and well-being. And it sounds flaky, but it actually has physical effects and they're very, very real. And it's not just locus of control. So another researcher at University of California, Berkeley, looked at this notion of locus of control, <clears throat> and he felt it didn't explain everything. He said, it just, it's just doesn't explain the whole story. Because he, he thought there was still a gradient there even when you removed locus of control. And what he'd observed was that if you take, and he worked in um, the Bay Area of San Francisco in Oakland, which is a very poor community, he observed that if uh, you had a single mother with three kids on a pension, on Social Security, and she had to phone up for assistance. If she lifted the phone and it was dial one for this, dial two for that, dial three for that, she hung up. And you find this in other people, you find this in long-term unemployed. The biggest thing if you're in the long-term unemployed is getting up in the morning, dressing yourself, looking good, and feeling I can go out today and do this interview. The simple stuff of getting up and getting dressed becomes really hard. And what he talked about, this is Len Syme at Berkeley, was self-efficacy. When you lose this locus of control, you start to lose the ability to make decisions and feel that you are actually having an effect. They've shown this in women with breast cancer. No matter what your level of education, women with breast cancer, once they're in the system, start to lose their locus of control. The system takes over for you. The oncologist is making decisions, the surgeon's making decisions, um, your life is on this track of chemotherapy and what have you. And powerful women lose that self-efficacy in being part of the system. It's fragile. 
And so it happens. And people go on, you know, when you read the psychiatric textbooks, you know, almost every mental health problem, psychological distress, which I'll come back to in a minute, and others are more common in women, as if there's some weakness in having two X chromosomes, when it's bloody obvious why psychological distress could be more common in women, is who's lost locus of control more than women? I mean, I'm not denigrating what I was saying about Aboriginal communities at all, but you have an unfair share of housework, you have inequities in pay, those inequities are often hidden from you depending on what industry you're in, what could be more disappearing than that, working in a workplace where you think your male colleagues are earning more than you, and they probably are, and you've got the kids to pick up, you've got these, you know, essentially this mental load that people talk about and no time for yourself or that sense of being able to make decisions about yourself. So after people who are disenfranchised, who follow extreme poverty, the gender gap is huge when it comes to this. The problem becomes is that labels start to be forced on you. And these labels start to medicalize what in fact is normal. Because if you've got a partner who's not sharing the load with you, you've got three kids and you're doing all the planning for the kids and thinking about, have I signed the permission for the kids to go on that you know, excursion or what have you? I can't give up my job because we've got all sorts of, we've got the mortgage to pay for and you feel trapped. People start medicalizing. Doctors say, you've got chronic fatigue syndrome. Look at that. I'm just knackered. Um, it's not a medical condition. It's a social condition. It's a societal condition. It's a system condition. So burnout is the other thing that people talk about and say this is as if it's a medical condition. Burnout is not a medical condition. It's a condition caused by work and circumstances and systems. Now, people do describe, and I've got a section on burnout, people do describe what work burnout is. So it's a feeling of exhaustion. It's a feeling of being down on yourself, that I'm, I'm really not as good as I once thought I was. I was once really great and strong and powerful and knew what I was doing, but I'm not anymore. I'm just being crap. I'm not feeling I'm doing my job properly. And I can't see myself ever doing this job properly in the future. Sound familiar? And I think a lot of people, men and women, have felt that more during COVID. We've had more time to ourselves. We've been working from home. The boundaries between work, family, household, friendships, has, you know, the, the, the boundaries are loose. And when boundaries are loose, it's really hard to get, gain control of things. And people have had time to reflect. And so you've got the great churn happening in terms of workplaces, moving on, deciding that life is short, I want to do stuff, I want to regain control. So people are moving on and changing job and changing career because they've had that time to reflect. And that's you pulling the locus of control back to yourself, making your own decisions. Now, you might make the wrong decision and five years from now say, well, I wish I had stayed there, but in fact, it's the right decision for the moment because you're pulling that control back to yourself. Hi, it's Helen jumping back in. 
I just want to take a moment to consider Madison's incredible acknowledgement of country and to urge you to consider the way your organisation and you carry out an acknowledgement of country both in person and online. We're going to jump back into Dr Swan's keynote address now, but make sure you keep listening because after his speech, there's a Q&A section from our summit audience where Dr Swan addresses how to facilitate conversations about stress and anxiety with colleagues. But first, here he is in his keynote address sharing two words that he simply can't stand. One is wellness, and the other, which I hate even more, is resilience. Two bullshit words, if I've ever heard them. Let's start with resilience. It makes, I've got to stop myself from getting angry here. We even have, you know, the government's paying Shane Stone to be some resilience person. Um, and at the same time as being the resilience person, he's criticising the people of Lismore for living in a flood zone. Doesn't criticise people in Innisfail or Cairns for living in a cyclone zone, but he criticises people living in Lismore for being in a flood zone. You know, this person who's paid for community, you know, in a sense, community resilience. You don't hear that from Shane Fitzsimmons, by the way. Resilience is about being able to take an adverse circumstance and bounce back. You know, just basically, you're like a bouncing ball. Can you actually do it? Something bad happens, I bounce back and I'm able to do it. I'm being really crude here in terms of what resilience is. But the word implies, and the way some people talk about resilience, is that it's a fixed commodity. There are resilient people in this world, and they never say this, and there are weak people in this world. Now, military establishments, defence forces around the world have spent a lot of money trying to recruit resilient people to the armed forces. Because if you're recruiting somebody to say the special forces or what have you, you want somebody who's not going to get PTSD, you want somebody who's actually going to be able to go into battle, see awful things, bounce back. And they've failed miserably. In fact, when you look at, it's incredibly consistent across defence forces across the world, when you look at their recruitment, 10% of their uh, new recruits have bipolar disorder. The actual incidence of bipolar disorder in the community, or prevalence, is 1%, 1 in 100. So they, through their brilliant recruitment measure, managed to over-select for bipolar disorder these unfortunate people going into this circumstance which they, uh, you know, they don't survive the first year by and large because their, their mental health issue works against them. It gets them through the interview because they've got so much energy and enthusiasm and they're such appealing people, but they've failed to identify resilient people. People in the special forces get PTSD. They get it a little bit later, but they get almost as much as anybody else in the community. Resilience is a transient phenomenon. There'll be years of your life where you feel strong and great and things are going well and you're able to bounce back and there'll be years in your life where the opposite occurs, often because you've lost your mum or dad, you've lost your job, you've lost a close friend, things aren't going well, you've had to give up a house because you can't afford the mortgage, multiple things like that and you will lose your resilience, men and women, for a while and then it will come back. There's not a world with resilient people and weak people. 
There's a resilience phenomenon that comes and goes. And so this, this labeling is just so prevalent. <clears throat> and, the pre- and the labeling gets inside your head and screws with your brain, and screws with your mind, screws with your psychological well-being. And this wellness crap. So it's as if you've got a God-given right, and if you watch the ads on TV and look at the magazines, it's that you've got some God-given right to be well all the time. So if you're a bloke, you jump out of bed and you wash your pearly white teeth and you admire your washboard abdomen (laughs) and your perfect children come in and you're laughing and joking. And if you're a woman, you bounce out of bed and you wash your pearly white teeth and you admire your thin thighs and perfect bottom and and clear skin. And and again, your perfect children, pardon me, come in. When most of us get out of bed and we feel completely crap. <laughs> we go over to the sink to wash our teeth and we look at our body, which is a normal shaped body, not mine, mine's got a Pinot Noir abdomen, but anyway. Um, <laughs> but you, you know what I mean. How would you know that you feel well if you don't feel crap a lot of the time? We do not feel well every day of the week. And of course, people start medicalizing this and giving it a label. So in the normal course of a normal week, a normal life, it goes up and down. We ebb and flow. When it becomes label-worthy is when it's every day. I I just don't want to get out of bed. I'm not sleeping well. I've got interrupted sleep. I don't want to see my friends on Friday night because I just don't get any pleasure out of it anymore. I just don't want to do things. And it's every day. And it dominates your life. You're not able to live your life normally and it's affecting your work. That's when you've got an issue with, say, psychological distress or depression, and you absolutely do need to be be helped. But with this striving for wellness, it's just bullshit. And we need to resist it. And we've got all sorts of health anxieties which distract us from the real stuff. So we've been told, you've got to get seven or eight hours sleep a night. There's no God-given right to seven or eight hours sleep a night. It's just some statistical thing that people have plucked out of, not quite thin air, but it's, it's not a strong piece of evidence. And so people are sleeping five or six hours a night, have insomnia because they're worried about only sleeping five or six hours a night. <laughs> and what is, what's been shown is that if you, and there's plenty of good sleep therapy around, I won't go into sleep therapy, but if you go into sleep therapy and you get the best sleep therapy, what counts is not sleep duration, it's sleep quality. So are you waking up refreshed? Are you waking up too many times in the night? Are you finding it hard to get to sleep? Um, Are you waking up at three o'clock in the morning? What's your pattern of sleep? That's what counts. And the best sleep therapy does not turn you from a six hour a night person to an eight hour a night person. It just turns a six hour a night person into a good night's sleep. And what they found is that people who are in bed, who are complaining of insomnia, who are in bed, for, and they say, well, I'm in bed for, you know, for nine hours, they're actually not asleep for nine hours. They're lying there thinking, what do I do now? Um, I have spoken for far too long, and um, what I should do now is have a conversation with you and see what you want to know about. Thank you very much. Dr. Swan, we've got a we've got a question from the virtual room. Uh, Lauren Beckman asks, "How can we support people with genuine mental illness without over medicalizing or trivialising anxiety?" Well, first of all, 
you're not going to make somebody worse by asking them how they're going and whether they're okay. Um, and usually when you ask somebody about that, you're noticing that they're not doing as well as they were. So they're not doing as well at work. You just notice there's a problem there. In which case, you're not over-medicalizing. You're not going to ask somebody who's bouncing around looking great all the time, partying and having a really good time. And you, you're going to be saying that to somebody that you, you intuitively know is actually doing it tough. And then they do need help. Um, you know, have they got a churning anxiety? Are they finding it hard to sleep because of this anxiety? Are they worried about things all the time, worried about things that defy reality. In other words, the reality of their lives is very different from what they're feeling. And um, you don't get hung up on medicalizing that situation. You know, people in that situation need help. You don't become the therapist, but you guide them towards Beyond Blue, towards whatever uh, help is available in the workplace so that they can actually get help for their issue because it's not normal. Dr. Swan, we've got time for one more in-room question. I'm going to go over there because you've got the most eager hand up I've ever seen. Reminds me of myself in grade three trying to ask questions. Here you go. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Judy. I actually have a lot of questions, but I chose the best one that I wanted to ask. So kind of segueing from the previous question, um, what I've noticed is that a lot of the times when we discuss uh, just having a chat with our colleagues, they talk about how you know they're a little bit stressed out or it's just stress and they kind of trivialize that. And you talking about chronic stress, how do we change the discourse on that? How do we talk about it in a way that doesn't trivialize stress? Well, I think that you've got to, in an open-ended way, find out what's going on. And if you feel it's broader in the workplace, for example, than just that one person or it's something you're feeling yourself, then what the burnout experts, now burnout is not a medical condition, but it, you, know, you get the features of that, is that you need to sort out the workplace. Now, in some workplaces, you've got people, so in a lot of workplaces, you've got people who say they care, but don't. And you've got a lot of workplace, in other workplaces who do care, but not quite sure what to do. You've actually got to restructure the, the workplace. And one of the things I was talking about earlier um, with Helen was this notion of flexibility. Uh, one of the things that creates a lot of stress is speaking with forked tongue. So saying that you're a flexible workplace when you're clearly not, not walking the talk, and knowing that people in flexible workplaces give 110%, and people in flexible workplaces often only give 85 or 90, and they know they're only giving 85 or 90 because they don't have that flexibility. So it's being able to actually have a workplace where you can speak out. And what the people who've studied burnout for a long time say is that sometimes you know you're in a workplace where you can't change stuff. You can have an honest conversation. You can say, you know, to do that in a safe environment. And some workplaces, you know you can't. And so sometimes you actually do have to move on. I suspect too many people move on in workplaces where they could actually change it for the better in terms of inflexibility. So I, I don't have a magic solution, but it, it's system-based. System it's the system in which you're living. It's not the blaming of an individual. Even if you've got a lousy boss, it's the system that is allowing that person to be a lousy boss rather than something wrong with that person themselves, an improvement. So you've got to take a systems approach, and it's more than just one person doing that. And remember, that was from one of our live events. And you can become part of the movement 
by signing up at futurewomen.com. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe, executive producer Jenny Goggin, sound production by Darcy Thompson. 